This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Healthy Versus Toxic the podcast where licensed mental health professionals explore what makes a relationship healthy or unhealthy or even abusive, all from a scientifically informed perspective. Hello, this is Dr. Grande. Today's question is, how can one spot grandiose narcissistic abuse in a relationship? So in order to answer this question, I'm making this video 10 signs of grandiose narcissistic abuse. And here, in this example, I'll be focusing on a heterosexual romantic relationship where the man is narcissistic and the woman is the victim of narcissistic abuse. But of course, we know this can also be the other way around. That's fairly common. And we also know that both people in a relationship can be narcissistic. One could have more of the narcissistic characteristics than the other person, but both people could still have some narcissism. So before I get too far into this, What is narcissistic abuse? And specifically, what is grandiose narcissistic abuse? Well, it's important to remember that there are two types of narcissism, grandiose and vulnerable, and both exist on a continuum. So it's not like somebody has grandiose or vulnerable narcissism, or they don't. Everyone has some of the features of narcissism, but at different levels. And for a lot of people, the levels are so low, they don't interfere with functioning. But sometimes they get high enough to where they can interfere. We know that with narcissistic abuse, somebody can also have features of both grandiose and vulnerable characteristics at the same time. Now, focusing in on the grandiose component here, we know that when somebody has grandiose narcissistic features, and these are taken to an extreme, they could be diagnosed with a mental disorder called narcissistic personality disorder. This is a cluster B personality disorder, the dramatic erratic cluster, in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Now, not everybody with extreme grandiose narcissistic characteristics would qualify for that diagnosis, but we see this sometimes. So when looking to define grandiose narcissism, I'm going to start with the personality disorder and then add some of the other characteristics we see associated with grandiose narcissism. So with the personality disorder, we see nine symptom criteria, a grandiose sense of self-importance, having fantasies of success and power and wealth, being jealous of other people and believing other people are jealous of you. We see a sense of entitlement, arrogance, believing oneself to be special or unique, manipulating other people interpersonally. And this one, of course, is fairly important when we talk about narcissistic abuse. We see requiring excessive admiration and having a lack of empathy. 
So again, those are the symptom criteria, but then looking at some of the other characteristics associated with grandiose narcissism in general, we see low agreeableness. So somebody who's disagreeable, they tend not to trust other people. We see anger, aggression, a superficial charm, so being charming initially, but not having a lot of depth or substance. We see being callous, unemotional, socially bold or dominant, and being resistant to criticism. So now getting into the 10 signs or characteristics of grandiose narcissistic abuse. Now, some are the same as what we would see with vulnerable narcissistic abuse. Of course, there's some overlap. And it's important to remember that abuse that is not narcissistic could lead to these signs, and also mental disorders that have nothing to do with narcissism on both sides, meaning the person who's being abusive and the person who's the victim could explain some of these too. So talking to a mental health clinician is always a good idea when somebody's trying to figure out if they're in a relationship that involves grandiose narcissistic abuse or any type of abuse, really. So the first sign of grandiose narcissistic abuse is that the relationship appears strangled. And what I mean by this is not necessarily a lack of growth. I'll talk about that later on. That's another sign of grandiose narcissistic abuse. But like something external is just holding the relationship back and really preventing any type of freedom or movement in the relationship. So if there's a sense that the relationship is being strangled, that's a sign of grandiose narcissistic abuse. Number two is an abundance of immaturity. One thing we know about narcissism is it seems to be a situation that occurs when somebody gets stuck at a stage of development. So all people start out narcissistic, and most people shed the narcissistic characteristics as they learn to adapt to society and to society's norms. People that can't do that for whatever reason, because they were abused or other circumstances occurred, they get stuck in that narcissism, so they're immature. So really, by definition, if somebody has grandiose narcissism, they're going to be immature. And another kind of related sign to this one would be if you find yourself as the victim of narcissistic abuse, kind of resorting to petty tactics, kind of acting immature yourself, that is part of this immaturity sign. So it's immaturity on the part of the person who has narcissism, but it could also extend to the other party in the relationship, right? Sometimes what happens is when there's an immature person in a relationship, both people kind of get dragged down to that immature level, especially when arguments are occurring. The third sign of grandiose narcissistic abuse is when there's no forgiveness in the relationship. And this goes in both directions. Just because somebody is a narcissist doesn't mean that they're not mistreated as well, right? So we see that what happens in these relationships is neither person can forgive the other. So the relationships become hostile and cold, which really reflects the callous and unemotional characteristics we see with grandiose narcissism. The fourth sign of grandiose narcissistic abuse is there's no growth in the relationship. And this is similar to the relationship feeling strangled, but this is really when looking at the relationship over a long period of time. Really, relationships are supposed to grow and change and theoretically improve at some level. People get along better, they adapt to one another. But with narcissistic abuse, specifically grandiose, we see that the relationships kind of move backward. So they go for several years and maybe progress a little bit and then move backward. So there's no growth or the relationships are actually kind of moving toward a worse place. They're moving 
again, kind of backward toward the beginning. Now, the fifth sign here would be that basic needs of the relationship are met, but more complex needs are not being met. So what we see is like food, shelter, financial security, transportation, and for that matter, sexual needs could be met, but the more complex needs are being sacrificed. Now, when it comes to the sexual needs, though, a lot of times this is one way, meaning the grandiose narcissist has their sexual needs met, but the victim of the abuse does not have their needs met. So while on the topic of sex and needs being met, this leads to the sixth sign of grandiose narcissistic abuse, which is sexual narcissism. And what happens here in these relationships a lot of the time is that the person who's the victim of narcissistic abuse finds themselves submitting sexually, usually to prevent a fight or to prevent the narcissist from leaving the relationship. And this is typically subtle. It's not all at once. The narcissist kind of pushes slowly for increasing the number of sexual activities or becoming increasingly dominant, sadistic, or humiliating in the sexual component of the relationship. So it kind of maybe starts as innocent, like it may be fun, but then progresses to something that's really more abusive. So kind of in line with this particular sign is this idea that the victim is starved for any type of meaningful affection. So there's a lot of sexual activity, but it's not meaningful. There's no emotional connection, no sensitivity, and no depth. So this kind of goes back to the superficial nature of narcissism. So moving to the seventh sign of grandiose narcissistic abuse, this is kind of related to that emotional starvation component I mentioned before, but in an intellectual level. So being intellectually starved, not being intellectually stimulated. And there's a lot of different kind of signs of this. For example, parallel communication is something that's fairly common when there's no intellectual connection or intellectual stimulation. So this is when two people are talking to one another, but not really. So the narcissist will have their narrative and they'll say whatever they're going to say, and the victim will say whatever they're going to say, but they're not really connected. They're not building off of each other's narrative. So they're really just separate stories. If you heard them independently, you would get the same value as hearing them told together. That's parallel communication. And sometimes what I see here is that the victim will try to add something meaningful. They'll try to connect intellectually with the narcissist in the form of communication, but they'll be rejected. And I've heard this put in really unpleasant ways. For example, I've seen quite a few times when a couple is kind of talking to one another, but it's really more or less parallel communication, where the narcissist will say, please don't attempt to add anything to this conversation. So the victim will try to add something, and the narcissist will actually say that. So that's a very bad indication of grandiose narcissism. And of course, it could be indicative of vulnerable narcissism as well. Moving to number eight here, we see that there are certain emotional and affective signs that are associated with grandiose narcissistic abuse. Like when somebody is not encouraged or recognized, and they have the sexual narcissism and the other characteristics, they tend to develop certain emotional and affective responses, like despondency, feeling worthless. Sometimes they're just told they're worthless by the narcissist. They might feel depressed or fatalistic. And by fatalistic, I don't mean like suicidal, but I mean like fatalism, like when somebody believes that their 
path is set out before them, that it's determined, like they have no control in their life. And that can happen because, like the narcissist, especially a grandiose narcissist, has kind of taken control. We see other signs here wrapped up in the same one, the emotional affective signs, like being tired of fighting, feeling drained. I call this hate fatigue. So the victim might hate the narcissistic abuser a lot, but eventually they become tired of hating. Or the hatred turns inward, like self-hatred. So they might say to themselves, why do I put up with this narcissist? And they start to hate themselves for staying in the relationship. Sign number nine for grandiose narcissistic abuse is when the victim starts to feel as though they are the problem. And this could be directly caused by gaslighting. So this is when the narcissist tries to convince the victim that they're the problem. But it could also be caused just by these other characteristics, these other signs of narcissistic abuse. So what we see is kind of a string of failed attempts to satisfy the demands of the narcissist. So this can affect self-esteem. And one of the worst signs I've seen, and I've seen this quite a few times, is when the narcissist gives the victim a list of things to change, like a physical list, or it could be digital as well, I guess. But I've seen it kind of written out many times. So they write out a list of things that the victim must change if the narcissist is going to stay in the relationship or come back to the relationship. So the narcissist could be having an affair and give this list to the victim and say, if you comply with this list, I'll think about coming back. Again, I've seen this several times, and I think this is one of the kind of more serious signs of narcissistic abuse, being handed a list and saying, you need to change all these things. Now, that's different than a couple getting together and having certain things they want the other person to change. I'm talking about a one-sided list that's extensive and specifically paired with kind of this threat of leaving or this promise of coming back. So the last sign of narcissistic abuse, of grandiose narcissistic abuse, I'll cover here, sign number 10, is really involving the cognitive elements. So we see certain thoughts that tend to occur with people who are the victims of this type of abuse. They might be concerned that they're narcissistic too. They might worry about becoming narcissistic. They may be obsessed with revenge, like hoping that bad things happen to the grandiose narcissist. Not necessarily serious things, but I've seen that as well. A lot of times it's more of a passive desire. For example, I've seen situations where the victim has found out that the narcissist was in a car accident, but then they're disappointed to find out that the narcissist was fine. So they kind of get mad at the vehicle manufacturer for making the car so safe, or get mad at the person who caused the accident for not hitting the narcissist's car harder. Like things like that. So kind of bad thoughts, non-productive thoughts. And that's still, in a sense, passive. They're not actively doing anything to hurt the narcissist, but they're really hoping something bad will happen. So that's the 10th sign. Again, that's the cognitive piece that I've seen with grandiose narcissistic abuse. How can one spot vulnerable narcissistic abuse in a romantic relationship? So I put together this video of 10 signs of vulnerable narcissistic abuse. So as I indicated, this applies to romantic relationships. And with these particular 10 signs, I looked at heterosexual romantic relationships, not only in the scientific literature, but in my clinical experience. So I'm really talking about a specific type of romantic relationship. 
It's important to remember that when we talk about narcissistic abuse, that in a relationship, both people could have narcissism. So one level of narcissism could be a little higher than another because narcissism is really on a continuum. Also, there are two types of narcissism, grandiose and vulnerable. I already did a video in the past, 10 Signs of Grandiose Narcissistic Abuse. Here I'll just be talking about vulnerable narcissistic abuse. Now, some narcissistic abuse has characteristics from grandiose and vulnerable put together. So it's not always clear-cut where you have grandiose narcissism on one side, and that contributes to abuse, and then vulnerable on the other, and people kind of fall into one category or another. And to make things even a little bit more complex, sometimes people move from a grandiose narcissistic profile over to vulnerable narcissism and back. We call this oscillation between the different types of narcissism. So it gets a little confusing, but again, here I'm just kind of honing in on vulnerable narcissism. So I'm going to take a look at the characteristics specific to vulnerable narcissism. It's important to understand at first, though, there are some characteristics that we see across both types. That would be self-centeredness, a sense of entitlement, and need for admiration. Those are characteristics of both grandiose and vulnerable narcissism. Now, specific to vulnerable narcissism, we see a low level of extroversion. So somebody who has vulnerable narcissism tends to be introverted, and they tend to have high neuroticism. So anxiety, depression, anger, and other types of symptoms that could come out, especially when somebody's under stress. So they appear to be more sensitive to stressful situations. Now, other characteristics we see that are generally considered unique to vulnerable narcissism in terms of the narcissism sphere in general would be this tendency to be resentful, distrustful, to be insecure, to have a lot of feelings of shame, to be hypersensitive to criticism, to be defensive, socially awkward, shy, pessimistic, and to be unforgiving. We also see internal anger and aggression, but sometimes it can also be external. And we see jealousy, which of course we also see with grandiose narcissism, but with the jealousy with vulnerable narcissism, it's more about a feeling of inferiority. So now moving to the list, the 10 signs of vulnerable narcissistic abuse. We see here that these are characteristics, these are signs I've seen associated with vulnerable narcissistic abuse, but there could be other explanations in any particular circumstance. For example, mental disorder or symptoms could explain some of these symptoms as well. So the first sign of vulnerable narcissistic abuse is in a romantic relationship. Again, I'm talking about a heterosexual or romantic relationship where we see that somebody starts arguments in which they portray themselves as the victim when the evidence doesn't really support that they're the victim. And kind of another aspect of this sign is kind of playing the victim from something that happened a long time ago. So maybe the vulnerable narcissist was legitimately a victim, but it happened like 10, 20, 30 years ago, the victimization, and they bring it up kind of as if it's a current issue. So we see a tendency here to be unforgiving, right? Little things just can't be released. They can't let the little things go. And this is interesting because it's kind of consistent with paranoid personality disorder. It has kind of a few features of that disorder. Now we know when we look at vulnerable narcissism, if we take it to an extreme, there isn't a clear pathology aligned with it like there is with grandiose narcissism. With grandiose narcissism, we see 
narcissistic personality disorder at the extreme. With vulnerable narcissism, we really don't see that, but we see certain symptoms of certain disorders seem to be present. And this one, as I mentioned, seems to align with paranoid personality disorder. Now, with this first sign, I'm going to introduce the idea of the dark cloud, which is kind of one of my theories about vulnerable narcissism. And it ties to several of the signs of vulnerable narcissistic abuse. But here, the unforgiving nature would be just one aspect of the dark cloud that I'll talk about again with some of these other signs. So the second sign is continual negativity. And this just tends to wear people down in relationships. That's why I consider it an abusive sign. The vulnerable narcissist always sees disaster and pain and suffering and grief, and they never really seem to have an optimistic view of anything. So you end up in a situation where it's just all negativity. Now, this also ties into the dark cloud, right? There's this idea that there's always a dark cloud kind of hanging over their head, and it kind of extends to other people, and that's when it gets a bit abusive. But this aspect of the dark cloud is more in general and not really specific to a person. So to talk about the dark cloud as specific to a person, I'm going to move to the third sign of vulnerable narcissistic abuse. And that would be the specific dark cloud. That's what I call it. And this is specific to a romantic relationship, to one particular romantic relationship. And elements of this we see would be that there's no forgiveness no matter what somebody does. So sometimes a mistake can be made in a relationship and there can be a compromise worked out or somebody can ask for forgiveness and that can occur. But with this specific dark cloud, no matter what somebody does, forgiveness won't occur. There's no remediation. There's no fixing the problem. The way I've heard described by people in clinical settings is they feel as though they're hated by the vulnerable narcissist. So they always feel like that hatred is there, whether they're being actively abused or not. There's this sense that there's this constant hatred. There's no forgiveness. There's no way to set things right with the vulnerable narcissist. At least that's one sign of vulnerable narcissistic abuse. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Bravery Academy. My name is Emma Ferris and I'm your host. This podcast is crafted to share the stories of courageous individuals who've overcome adversity and found the courage to live their best lives. We'll explore the science of well-being, courage and connection and interview top thought leaders, game changers and survivors. And it's from these stories that we learn what resilience is, how to heal, how to recover and how to be brave. Now, to move on to the fourth sign, we see that there are a lot of non-productive arguments that occur in the context of these relationships. There's no progress, and just like with the third sign, there's really no compromise. No compromise occurs that kind of heals whatever the argument is about. So the argument just continues, and it's kind of a war of attrition, right? There's no response that's adequate, 
just like the third sign, there's nothing that can be said that can fix it. So it just becomes this war of attrition. It's simply just abuse. It's arguing just to cause pain because there is no acceptable solution. So in a sense, sometimes somebody who has vulnerable narcissism, they can tolerate arguments better than somebody who doesn't. Not most of the time, interestingly, but some of the time they can, and they can use this ability to just wear the other person down. I think the grandiose narcissist actually has more of this ability, but when we see it activated in vulnerable narcissism, it can be strong. I usually think of it with vulnerable narcissism as much more time-limited, though, because, again, eventually the vulnerable narcissist isn't going to want the argument either. And then what I find is that they want to end the argument quickly. So they look for a resolution to the argument really quickly after they've been causing the argument for days or weeks. So that's the fourth sign, non-productive arguments. The fifth sign is this idea that anger and hatred are just below the surface all the time, right? It's kind of like handling an unstable explosive. It might not explode, but it may explode, and you never know when that's going to happen. The victims of vulnerable narcissistic abuse, what I've found, tend to know what they could say to start a fight with a vulnerable narcissist if they wanted to start a fight. So it's not like they have to have a few tries to say something to cause the fight. They always know the right term or subject matter or whatever they can bring up, the right topic that can generate a fight. Not that they would do this, but it's always having that knowledge. Again, the anger and the hatred just below the surface and very easily activated. The sixth sign of vulnerable narcissistic abuse is when somebody in a romantic relationship like this accuses the other person without evidence on a regular basis. And this tends to be around like affairs and infidelity, like so accusing somebody of having too much interest in another person, right? So they're highly jealous. And this moves back to kind of the victim dynamic. And this is interesting because it connects back to some of the symptoms we see with two different personality disorders, borderline personality disorder, as well as paranoid personality disorder, which I mentioned before. So the seventh sign of vulnerable narcissistic abuse is sexual narcissism. And this was also a sign for grandiose narcissistic abuse. But with that type of narcissism, with grandiose narcissism, we see this tendency for the grandiose narcissist to want somebody to submit sexually in order to prevent a fight or to prevent the narcissist from leaving. So the sexual interest becomes kind of increasingly dominant or humiliating. With vulnerable narcissism, it's a bit different. The pressure to have sex is to prove that you love that person enough, to prove that you won't leave them. And this really ties in quite strongly with characteristics we see from borderline personality disorder. So here it's not so much about kind of domination, but a continual need to prove that you love someone enough. And ostensibly, of course, the act of sex kind of proves that, but of course it really doesn't, and this just leads to other problems. But either way, this type of sexual narcissism characterizes vulnerable narcissistic abuse. Sign number eight involves poor listening skills. This seems to be a problem with both grandiose and vulnerable narcissism. But what's interesting about vulnerable narcissism and this sign is the poor listening skills are often disguised as good listening skills. So it's not always obvious that somebody's not listening which kind of speaks back to another term used for vulnerable narcissism, which is covert narcissism. 
kind of suggesting that this type of narcissism is a little harder to detect. And with sign number eight here, the poor listening skills, we can see that seems to be the case. So what happens is that somebody who has vulnerable narcissism can attend to a conversation good enough to kind of pass as a good listener, while really they're off in their own world. So this really speaks to kind of the low extroversion characteristic or the introversion characteristic. So they're able to kind of think about something, maybe analyze another situation or be off kind of in a fantasy while pretending to be a good listener. Sign number nine is a disgust for friends outside of that romantic dyad, right? So somebody's in a relationship with a vulnerable narcissist, that narcissist is going to have disgust for that other person's friends. And this comes down to jealousy and specifically jealousy of time spent with other people or attention paid to other people. So if you're on the phone with somebody like a friend and the vulnerable narcissist kind of comes into the room, they want you to end that phone call, they want your attention, that's really kind of the jealousy component taken to an extreme. And what they might say is you're not prioritizing well, you're not putting them first, so there's kind of a guilt trip that's played in the situation. And if we look at the scientific literature, this gets connected to the high attachment anxiety that we see with vulnerable narcissism and also the possessiveness, which is really a key component of vulnerable narcissism in romantic relationships. So moving to the last sign of vulnerable narcissistic abuse. I save this one to the end because I think it's kind of important in how it differentiates grandiose narcissism from vulnerable. And this is repeated grand efforts to change, failed attempts at reform. That's what we see with vulnerable narcissism. What we kind of see here is a struggle at some level, right? Like the vulnerable narcissist kind of realizes that change would be helpful. They realize that something isn't quite right in the relationship. And unlike the grandiose narcissist, they do want to make some sort of effort to change that. They see it, they know something's wrong, and they want to change it. But again, what happens most of the time is there are these grand efforts, but they still fail in the attempt at making any type of lasting or meaningful change. So in a sense, there's better insight with this type of narcissism. There's, again, that realization that something is wrong, but it's hard to act on that to accomplish some sort of meaningful change. I do think, though, that when the grand efforts for change are available, when that effort seems to be taking place, that's a good time to see a counselor. I think really any time is a good time to see a counselor when we see vulnerable narcissistic abuse, but in particular when somebody seems to be more open to changing. So I think that would be a good time to involve a counselor and try to capitalize on that desire to change because a lot of time that desire leads to efforts that are kind of misdirected and maybe the counselor can point somebody in a more productive direction. Today's question asks if I can talk about grandiose and vulnerable narcissism and which one is worse. So I get a lot of these types of questions where there'll be a few disorders and someone might ask which one is worst or a few personality characteristics and they'll ask the same thing. And the difficulty is always really the same. You really have to define worse or worst. What's the worst? So I try to look at these questions in this way. Let me look at a particular characteristic of the construct and see if I can see which one is more on one side or the other on a continuum, right? So, for example, with 
grandiose and vulnerable narcissism, we could say which one is more associated with sadness, right? Because we look at sadness and think, well, sadness is not good. Sadness is not where people want to be. So in a sense, along the sadness continuum, one construct may be worse than the other. Another question I could answer here is, which type offers a greater chance of recovery? And this is an interesting question because the word recovery, with grandiose narcissism, we know there is a pathological variant to that construct, narcissistic personality disorder. With vulnerable narcissism, we know there's not. There is no vulnerable narcissism disorder. There are some disorders which are close, and I'll talk about that, but we don't really have a pathological variant. So then you could ask the question, okay, which type of narcissism would have or offer a greater chance to change? So I'll answer that question as well. So as I talked about, of course, narcissism can be divided into two factors. So I'm going to cover those factors and then talk about the different answers really to these questions. So with narcissism, we have both grandiose narcissism, which is sometimes referred to as overt. And I think it's referred to as overt because it's fairly obvious. When you see somebody who has grandiose narcissistic characteristics, you can usually identify them pretty readily. The characteristics are obvious. The other type of narcissism is vulnerable, and sometimes this is called hypersensitive narcissism, and sometimes it's referred to as covert narcissism. And I think just like what we see with overt, the reason it's called covert is because it's hard to see. Vulnerable narcissistic characteristics are hidden. They're not as obvious as grandiose. So we see that grandiose and vulnerable narcissism share some characteristics, self-centeredness, a sense of entitlement, a need for admiration. And looking at the five-factor model, I remember it through the acronym OCEAN, openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and eroticism, we see that both have low agreeableness. Or if you want to think of it a different way, high antagonism, if you're using an alternative way of looking at it. But I like the five-factor model, so low agreeableness. They both share that characteristic. Now, when we move specifically into grandiose narcissism, we see certain characteristics there more so than what we see with vulnerable narcissism and some characteristics we really only see with grandiose. So there's characteristics like arrogance, being socially bold, having high self-confidence, having superficial charm, similar to what we see with psychopathy. We also see someone who's resistant to criticism, and this will be important later. We also see callous, unemotional traits, again, similar to psychopathy. Somebody who has grandiose narcissism tends to be optimistic. They tend to be angry and aggressive, but it's externalized. So it's anger and aggression in a traditional sense, and usually as a result of direct confrontation. So it's interesting here because grandiose narcissism, when combined with psychopathy, increases the risk that somebody will commit a crime against a person, whereas vulnerable narcissism mixed with psychopathy increases the chance of a crime against property. So kind of a difference there with the anger and aggression with grandiose versus vulnerable. We also see that grandiose narcissism is associated with being envious, but we usually think of this as like an unconscious envy. So they demonstrate envious behaviors, but they don't know why. We also see fantasies of power, success, and wealth 
And these are fairly straightforward. Somebody wants to be a famous business person, a famous politician, an actor, an actress. They want a lot of money. They want people to respect them. So very simplistic fantasies. It's also associated with a high level of extroversion, including positive emotionality. And it's associated with low neuroticism. So again, somebody's kind of calm. They don't have a lot of anxiety or depression. As I mentioned before, the pathological variant, so if grandiose narcissistic characteristics are taken to the extreme, the disorder would be narcissistic personality disorder. But of course, somebody would have to meet the full criteria for that disorder and be diagnosed by a licensed and qualified clinician. So vulnerable narcissism, of course, is a bit different. Here we see characteristics like being resentful, distrusting other people, similar to what we see with paranoid personality disorder, being insecure, having a lot of shame, and this characteristic is extremely important, I'll come back to it later, being hypersensitive, being low on extroversion or introverted, being defensive, avoidant, anxious and depressed, socially awkward, shy, being pessimistic as opposed to being optimistic, demonstrating self-absorbed aloofness, having a fragile sense of self or fragile self-esteem. We actually see this with kind of both grandiose and vulnerable, but it's more obvious with vulnerable. We see being cold and distant and being unforgiving. So this makes a lot of sense to me because if somebody has vulnerable narcissism, they can't forgive themselves. So it makes sense that they can't forgive other people. If somebody has grandiose narcissism, there's nothing to forgive. They don't look at themselves as having violated social norms or as having hurt anyone else. So there's a lack of insight there. And therefore, they believe they haven't done anything wrong that would require forgiveness. Now, in terms of anger and aggression, I mentioned this with grandiose narcissism, that it's external. With vulnerable narcissism, it's often internal because somebody with this characteristic doesn't like direct confrontation, but they still have the anger and aggression and it has to go somewhere. So it's directed inside, it's internal. Now in terms of jealousy, we saw this with grandiose narcissism. Here what happens with being envious is the people that have vulnerable narcissism, they feel inferior. So they're aware that they're jealous and they're aware of why they're jealous. So we see an obliviousness with grandiose narcissism that we don't see here with vulnerable narcissism as far as being jealous. I mentioned before it's associated with low extroversion. It's also associated with high neuroticism. So quite a bit different than grandiose narcissism. Now in terms of the fantasies, I was talking before about grandiose narcissism and how the fantasies there were like of wealth, power, and success in a very straightforward way. But with vulnerable narcissism, we see fantasies of rejection and redemption. So it's interesting. I've seen a lot of fantasies over the years from people who had grandiose narcissism and fantasies from people who have vulnerable narcissism. And I've talked about these differences in prior videos. But what you see with vulnerable narcissism really is this kind of idea of being rejected by people, being looked down on, being thought of as bad. And then they have a moment of heroism or success that's really poignant, and they're redeemed. See, with grandiose narcissism, there is no rejection component. It's just success. It's just people loving them and appreciating them and throwing money at them and all this. With vulnerable, 
It's a process. There's a beginning to the fantasy where the person is discarded and thrown away, and they overcome the perceptions of other people, which of course in the fantasy are incorrect. The perceptions are incorrect, and the vulnerable narcissist overcomes this and reaches a point of redemption where they do get the admiration and the power and the wealth. So I guess both fantasies sort of end up in the same place. But this is pretty interesting, the difference in fantasies, and this will play into kind of how I answer this question about which type of narcissist can change more easily or has a better probability of changing. Now, in terms of pathological variance, I mentioned this a little bit before. Here we see that it has a relationship with certain personality traits and therefore potentially personality disorders like borderline personality disorder, paranoid personality disorder, and avoidant personality disorder. But really, vulnerable narcissism, even taken to a pathological extreme, doesn't seem to really align too well with any of these personality disorders. So it's likely that somebody with what would be considered pathological vulnerable narcissism would be diagnosed with one of these personality disorders. But again, it's not a good fit here. We don't see a good fit between any of the 10 personality disorders and vulnerable narcissism. Now at the subclinical level, grandiose and vulnerable narcissism are considered distinct. Of course, it gets a little more confusing with pathology because there tends to be an oscillation from one type to the other. We see this a little bit with subclinical presentations as well. So whether they're considered distinct or not, or move back and forth between one another, going back to the original questions, which type is more associated with sadness? Right, if we're trying to answer the kind of overarching question of which type is worse. Well, it would seem that vulnerable narcissism has a much stronger association with sadness. What about which type offers a greater chance of recovery or a greater chance of change? Well, here I would actually say vulnerable narcissism does, and I'll explain why. We can think about vulnerable narcissism and its relationship to grandiose narcissism in this way. Vulnerable narcissism is a failure of self-enhancement efforts. So vulnerable narcissism is poor self-deception and grandiose is effective self-deception. I like to think of it with an analogy to Star Trek. I don't know how many have seen the Star Trek movies or the different television series, but the spaceship in Star Trek, the main spaceship, was the Enterprise and it had shields. And sometimes those shields would be effective and they would deflect attacks. And other times they would go down, they would fail, and the crew of the Enterprise would have to fight off an aggressor in combat in the ship with phasers or sometimes even hand-to-hand. -hand. This is really how grandiose and vulnerable narcissism seem to work. In this analogy, grandiose narcissism is the Enterprise with the shields up so attacks are deflected. The crew might not even know. The attacks come in, they hit the shields, and they could just keep flying through space and not realize it. With vulnerable narcissism, aggressors have boarded the ship. They have to fight in close quarters. They have to face their enemy. So you could look at self-deception kind of like having shields. Great self-deception is equal to effective shields. Grandiose narcissist are resistant to criticism. They don't have to worry about attacks because they can deflect them unconsciously. Vulnerable narcissists don't have this ability. They feel the attacks. They have to fight them off 
in person, up close and personal. They have to face the nature of the attacker and the attacks themselves. In essence, a vulnerable narcissist is unsuccessful at being a grandiose narcissist. They want to be, often. They want to have that confidence. There's moments where they seem like a grandiose narcissist, but they slip back. They slip back into the vulnerable patterns. And I think it's because of shame. So shame is really the key construct. I mentioned this before when I was talking about vulnerable narcissism. Shame is a feeling that you are bad as opposed to an action being wrong, which of course is guilt. Shame is destructive, but it can lead to change. Now guilt, I think, does a better job at leading to change, but neither grandiose nor vulnerable narcissism is associated with guilt. So all that we have to work with at a clinical level is shame. But that's not necessarily a terrible thing because a vulnerable narcissist, through shame, realizes that something is wrong. They often fail to identify what that is, but at least they know there's something going on that's not working. So in a sense, a vulnerable narcissist has a little bit more insight. Now, to be fair here, both grandiose and vulnerable narcissists are resistant to change. So we have to be realistic in terms of therapy and how much each personality construct will change over time. But if I had to answer the question, which one is more open to change, or which one has a higher probability of changing, which personality construct is more amenable to that, I would say vulnerable narcissism. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. The producers for this show are Christopher Brightigan and Madison Linden. The executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. For more content, please visit our website at arslanga.media. To leave feedback or suggestions, send an email to info at arslanga.media. To find more content from Dr. Grande, including a link to his YouTube channel and his other Ars Longa podcasts, visit our website at arslanga.media. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as medical or mental health advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.